to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo, you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashiano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I had uh, just got back from uh, South Florida, met with some friends, had another glorious day fishing yesterday. This time it was on the Atlantic instead of the Gulf. And, you know, when, when you fish, there's always a fishing story. So uh, on this particular occasion, the, the first mate was a bit of a comic, and he assigned everybody nicknames. So... Uh, I it was Jerry, I guess Jerry Garcia, or just Jerry, because of my my new hairdo, and uh, so it, he he said it several times enough that everybody heard it, and we actually had a couple of probably 500 pound shark that were circling the boat, and uh, one of them happened to grab my bait, so uh, the the woman who uh, the woman who was standing next to me just yelled out, Jerry's got a big one, so I was going to ask her. If, we could go to the poop deck so I could demonstrate whether that was true or false. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Benny, we've been doing this. <laughs> I've been hearing your stories and your, your shenanigans for over two years now. And I mean, we've had hall of famers. We've had uh, some real great moments on the show, but, but I've been telling you for a long time for years now, it seems like if we wanted to, to make it big, we wanted to really take that next step. We had to book Hogan. So you went out and you told me you went and booked Hulk Hogan. And what did I tell you? I said, no, not that Hogan, you moron. The the real Hogan. The real Hogan of wrestling. So, Benny, we booked the real Hogan. Why don't you tell everybody who we got on the line with us tonight? Well, let me tell you something, brother. Uh, we have a very special guest this evening. The the founder of Randomania, the one and only Randy Hogan. Randy, welcome to Dan and Benny in the ring. Oh, man, I am so honored to be here on your show. I can't believe it. Uh, here I am with Dan and Benny, Dan, Betty, and the Jets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we appreciate having you on. I mean, we've, we've both followed you on social media for a long time, and you are, are just a phenomenal character to follow. Uh, is the, the, the actions, we're going to get to a lot of the stories you've got, always fun stuff posting. But before we, we get too far into the now, we always want to start with the past. Same question we start pretty much everybody with because the answers are always different. And, and I got to ask you, Randy, uh, one, uh, when did you when did the bug bite you, as they say, the wrestling bug? Like, like when did you first become a fan of wrestling? And then from because obviously with, with uh, at the time would have been the territories which which territory did you grow up watching? Mm-hmm. Well, my grandparents got me started when I was about seven or eight years old. They lived right across the street from me and my parents, so when wrestling was on, I'd go over there and got to know the characters on TV, and then they started taking me downtown Detroit where I was raised. Um, just to, to see all these larger than life people. Um, that was back in the day of, uh, 
Well, I tell you, the original Gorgeous George, I saw him, uh, and the Pat O'Connors and the, the uh, uh, Buddy Rogers, and that, then the uh, Sheik kind of took over there. So the original Sheik, Dick the Bruiser, the Crusher, all them old guys are what I was raised on. And I think once you get the bug at an early, you know, an early part of your life like that, things, they just stay with you. You know, the, the nostalgia goes on and on and on and, and you try to keep up with that. That's when I've been a fan for, uh, ah, wow, 65 years now. But, uh, yeah, I was born and raised in, uh, in Detroit and I don't remember what the territory was back then. If they even had territories, they had areas, but, uh, it was all at, uh, the Olympia auditorium and then they built Cobo Hall and Joe Lewis Arena and I don't know what it's called now. But, uh, I was just raised strictly in that until, uh, the advent of, uh, of cable TV that came on and then I started getting some, uh, some stuff out of the, uh, <clears throat> um, mid-Atlantic area, and uh, we picked up some stuff out of Texas, so so I was raised on, like I said, starting with the Dick the Bruisers of the world and everything else, and then I got uh, indoctrinated to guys like Ricky Steamboat and uh, Greg Valentine, um, and guys like that, and then, of course, the uh, the Von Erichs coming up, and, and I just always followed it. I know we had no internet back then. So I used to subscribe to these dirt sheets. I don't know what it's called, was Observer or something. But uh, like every week, I'd get it in the mail, you know, and I'd read it. And that's the only way you could keep up with all this stuff. So I just read it, read it, read it, and, and just furthered my interest in, uh, in that activity. And I just carried it right through to this very day. That's <clears throat> fascinating. You know, it's funny you mentioned your grandparents get it, got you into it. Benny, how many times have we had people on and that's kind of been one of the narratives? It was their I, grandparents. I would that say got them of into all the, the, you know, the influences, grandparents are number one. Yeah, it's it's crazy that, that you know, the, today's generation wrestling is, is clearly geared towards children. But back then, it was a very, I don't want to say adult in that way, but it was, you know, the crowd was, was the grandparents of the families were the ones watching wrestling and bringing their grandkids into it. It's great stuff. Yeah, my parents, they could care less. You know, it was just all that fake stuff, whatever. So, and they never discouraged me. But, uh, you know, wrestling was, uh, bowling was mom and dad, and wrestling was my grandparents. Thank God for them grandparents. So, Randy, you have a, a pretty interesting story in that you trained to be a wrestler, but and I, hopefully I have this right. I, I heard this online, but you really you did it more of it initially more out of curiosity than with the you know the yeah. end goal of being a professional wrestler. So, and I believe you were at that point you were living in Columbus, Georgia. So, um, I want you to wanted you maybe to elaborate on that story and also who who actually trained you. Well, I was trained by Ted and Jerry Oates, the oh. Oates brothers, who had a, a gym in Columbus. Anyways, long story short, I played in a band. We used to play a holiday in circuit in the south and around. So we used to play in Columbus, Georgia, to Holiday Inn. Wednesday nights, they did. Uh, uh, they had wrestling at the auditorium there. 
And uh, so I would go all the time to watch wrestling and keep up on it. So, again, I was in the restaurant business. Excuse me. And um, I got transferred down to Boca Raton. So I was down there in Delray Beach. And then, anyways, bottom line, they closed the restaurant up. So I said, God, what am I going to do now? Now, again, always a wrestling fan. When I was playing in the band in Columbus, um, the wrestlers used to come in and used to stay there. So I got to see a lot of Wahoo McDaniel, uh, Continental Lover, Eddie Mansfield, um, guys like that. So they would come in uh, to the bar, and I would, they were always very friendly. I would just talk to them and got to know them and got to know um, Eddie better than any of them. So he wanted to... They'd be laying by the pool. So in the afternoon, I'd go to the pool and talk to Eddie and a couple of local little guys about wrestling and stuff. Kayfabe was alive then. I, I, I knew absolutely nothing. Okay, now here I'm, um, I'm a grown person in my uh, 20s, and I, I didn't know what was real or what wasn't real. So um, I ended up in Columbus, and I started going to the gym with Eddie Mansfield and, and the Oats of that and working out and everything. And I was always in pretty good shape. And uh, then I got transferred down to Boca. Well, when they closed that restaurant up, and I said, well, what am I going to do now? I, uh, I said, you know, I always wondered what's real and what's fake. I have no idea. So I called Jerry Oates. And I said, Jerry, do you know anybody down here that trains people? He said, the only one I know is Hiro Matsuda, who did Luger and that other Hogan dude. Yeah, but that, uh, that guy. They, uh, uh, they, but you know, he said, I train people up here. Now, he was training Marty Gennetti at the time. And uh, so we negotiated, and next thing I know, I'm driving from Boca up to Columbus, Georgia. Got a job managing a po folks restaurant, and that's actually what paid for my wrestling school. So I started going to uh, to with Jerry, and uh, he used to have a like an aerobics room in the back, no rig or nothing, just mats, and that's what he trained you on. And he always said, and I believe it, if you can take a bump on a cement floor and this little mat. You know, when you get in a ring, it's going to be, it's just going to be like a waterbed. So I trained and, um, I don't know, I think six or seven sessions in, and we were just still learning how to do front rolls and back bumps and stuff. And I, I twisted my ankle real bad. So that put me out of it for a while. I said, well, I don't know if I want to do this again. So anyways, when I was pretty much healed up, and this is probably three or four months later, in the meantime, Ted Oates opened up a real wrestling gym just across town. And uh, it was a a storefront, downtown Columbus, and they had a ring in there and a little bathroom, and that was about it. So I went and talked to Ted and said, you know, I'd like to come back and you know, start again. He said, well, okay. Now, I had paid Jerry some money, okay, which he got. So now I had to pay Ted more money. So 
going to pay both these brothers, even though they're both in cahoots. So anyway, I uh, started with uh, with Ted, and we'd work out uh, three times a week, sometimes more. And uh, and again, just old school. You know, they, they didn't take it easy on you, but they weren't going to beat your brains out. They really give us an education into the into the business. Now, they still didn't break kayfabe or nothing. They didn't teach you how to throw a punch. Uh, a whole lot of stuff they did not. They were strictly start from the basics and work your way up, um, which really helped me years later because I had no amateur background. So uh, I went through that and... Um, Let me see. It was right after that. I was going to the matches. Again, I went to the municipal auditorium every week when they had the wrestlers there. And um, one of the guys that I trained with um, was putting up the ring. So I went down and I said, Bill, what are you doing? He says, well, when they're in town, they rent my ring from me. So we just had a little chit-chat. He said, uh, you know, are you wrestling? I said, no. I said, I'm I'm done, because I thought I knew it all now. So I uh, said, so what are you doing? He says, well, I'm working in this little bar up in Athens, Georgia, I think it was. And uh, he says, why don't you come up and bring your stuff? I said, I'm not bringing my stuff, but I'd love to come up and watch you. So I did that for a couple of weeks. And uh, once, I, I don't know why, but I took my stuff, took my gear once, and they were shorthanded. That little bar had maybe 30 drunks in it, and that was it. So the promoter said, uh, Bill, does your buddy want to work? And Bill says, hell yes, he does. So uh, he introduced me to the promoter, and the guy said, uh, what's your name? I said, well, I'm trying to think of a name. Randy Franklin, because my dad's name was Frank. So he said, okay, Randy Franklin. He said, are you going to wrestle this guy named Animal? Not the world warrior, but just a little indie guy, uh, animal, and he's going to go over. I said, okay. Now, I know it all, okay? I've been through trading. So I go back to the locker room, and I said, hey, Bill. I said, I'm wrestling this animal guy, and he's going over. Now, does that mean he's going over the top rope, or I'm going What does that mean? He's going over. I did not know. He said, no, dummy, that means he's going to win. Oh, okay. So, anyways, got through the match, and uh, and promoter said, uh, said, that's good. You want to come back next week? Well, just that one match there just kind of said, well, this is kind of fun, you know. So, I went back, and he said, we're going to call you Hal Hogan. He says, are you going to be, you're going to be Hulk's cousin or uncle or something? So I said, okay. So I thought about it. I said, look, if you want to do the Hogan, whatever, that's fine. But at least let me use Randy because that's my real name. He says, okay, you're Randy Hogan. You're going to be, I don't know what you're going to be, his cousin, his uncle, his brother, or something or other. I says, okay. So I went home. And now I always had the mustache. Always had um, the dark tan and everything. So I went back home with my girlfriend. I said, "Honey, you gotta bleach my hair." 
okay. So I bleached my hair, my eyebrows, my mustache, everything to look like a Hogan. Now, again, to this day, I never once proclaimed to be any relative of his. It's showbiz. Whatever you want me to be his brother, I'll be his brother. You want me to be his uncle, his uncle. Pin me, pay me, you know. And, and uh, so I went through pretty much my whole career like that. So I got on a, uh, I started uh, working different independent shows. You know, the guys on the card, they're wrestling other places, different weekends. And you go see them. And as a professional courtesy, they will... Uh, usually introduce you to the promoter and you say, Hey, if you can ever use me, give me a call. So I got on matches like that and, and was doing okay around, uh, Alabama and Georgia. And I got on a card once where, um, they were bringing in a, a, a name event, a name guy to the event. This one happened to be in high school. I think it was and Mike Jackson, action, Mike Jackson. Oh yes. The self self proclaimed, uh, junior, Heavyweight title holder for the last, I don't know, 50 years. So anyways, we got in and, and I was in the semi-main and he, of course, he was the main event. And, uh, afterwards I said, well, I said, Hey, Mike, I said, how'd you get on TV? And Mike says, Oh, well, he says, you know, I bring guys up to TV once in a while. And he said, I can't guarantee you anything, but why don't you come up with me? I says, okay. So same story. I drove up with them a couple of weeks in a row. They were short. J.J. Dillon said, uh, uh, you know, Jackson, you got anybody out there? Yeah, I got Randy Hogan. Okay. So uh, that's how I got my first match, just kind of self-promoting and keeping my nose clean. And uh had a match against the Warlord the Barbarian and broke my nose in that very first match. I guess they took pity on me after that and said, you come back next week. So that became a regular on NWA, which, you know, when um, Turner bought it from Crockett, turned into WCW. And there was about, oh, I don't know, maybe five or six of us that actually made the transition from NWA to WCW. NWA believed in the squash matches, okay? You weren't supposed to fight back. You weren't supposed to throw a punch. You didn't do nothing. You just did the job. Well, when Turner bought it and Jim Hurd, I think it was, Eric Bischoff and some guys, they wanted guys that knew how to work. Well, luckily, I had been trained and I knew how to how to wrestle, so, because they wanted guys that could get in there with a Brad Armstrong or a Ricky Steamboat, as well as getting squashed by a Vader or Abdul the Butcher or somebody. So, so you learn to swim in either pond. And uh, so that was, uh, that's what gave me some longevity, just because I was trained well. And I feel so sorry for those kids now that, uh, you know, either they're not trained or they're taught some basics by somebody who doesn't know how to work themselves and they don't have any gear. They're still in the backyard and, uh, it's, it, it's, I feel sorry for them. I'm not angry or, or overly depressed about it, but I feel sorry for these kids that they have the same dream, the same passion 
for pro wrestling than I did, but they don't have the opportunities or the guidance. So, anyways, that's that. <clears throat> well, you know, it's funny you talk about. No, that that's a great story, I, you, Benny. Doesn't that kind of go to what what we talked about with the growth of? I mean, the the, the territory growth versus what we see today. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the transition to the Hogan name and whether you were going to be family or whatever the story called for. I mean, obviously, especially uh, uh, now with a lot of what happens, you emulate a lot. You emulated a lot of uh, the other that other Hogan as moves. Um, but outside of what you were trained, were there any other wrestlers you watched or maybe trained with or worked with that influenced uh, your style of wrestling in the ring? I really can't think of any. I mean, originally, I wanted to be like the original Sheik. I wanted to be a little bit crazy and everything. But uh, then I got I got tagged with this Hogan thing. And I said, well, okay, I'll see what this goes as. So I never wrestled under any other name other than Randy Hogan. Now, a lot of guys especially the jobbers back in the day. And again, I'm not offended by that term. Jobber, enhancement, style maker, carpenter, I don't care. It doesn't bother me a bit. So back, uh, I don't have a train of thought here, too many turnbuckles for the head. <laughs> back when the, um, who was I emulating? Oh, yeah. So anyways, when the Hogan thing started, I had to always be a baby face. I always wanted to be a heel. I thought it would be fun. So I never got the opportunity until he uh, did the uh, the NWO thing, and he turned heel. So then in local little indie shows around Central Florida, where I was at at the time, um, I turned into a heel. Again, never claiming to be related to him or nothing else. People pick up on him. They said, oh, aren't you Hulk's brother? And again, yeah. You his cousin? Yeah. You know, whatever you want me to be. Showbiz. So I, I pretty much let that die until one day, here I am, and I think I was wrestling Abdullah the Butcher. Oof. Jim Cornette was doing commentary. And Abdullah had me over the uh, the middle row, but had fingers in my mouth, you know, stretching my face all out of whack. And... uh Jimmy Cornette said, boy, I bet he wishes his big brother was here now. Well, I guess the dirty, everybody pick up on that. So now all of a sudden, oh, it is his brother. It is his brother. I knew it was. So that went on and on. I never, ever played the Hogan gimmick until about uh, three years ago, two and a half years ago. I always had turquoise trunks. Turquoise boots. I had a black velvet sequin robe with a turquoise interior, and that's what I had. That's what I wore all the time. So I get a call um, out of the clear blue after twenty some years of being out of it. I says, "Hey, would you like to do a convention?" Now I didn't know nothing. I didn't know they had wrestling conventions. I said, "Well, what do you mean when you're convention?" He said, what's well, a wrestling convention? It's called the Big Event up in New York. And uh, he said, I'd like to bring you in. 
He says, you know, we'll pay for your flight, for your room. Uh, we'll pay for your food. We'll give you X amount of dollars. Um, I said, wow, that sounds like fun. So he said, well, by the way, do you, did you ever do the, the Hogan gimmick? I says, no, but whatever you want me to do. So luckily my best friend owns a print shop down here. So we got the font for the Hulkamania. And I says, turn this into Randomania and let's print some t-shirts. So that's how it started. So that event, I started with the, uh, the red and yellow and uh, moved on to a full line of uh, merchandise and stuff right now. So as far as the uh, once in a while, if it's an old school um, signing or something, especially in Georgia, Alabama, I'll take my robe, which I still have. But uh, basically, you know, the this uh, vendor wanted me to do the uh, the red and yellow, so I did the bandana, the sunglasses, the t-shirt, the tie-dye stuff. I took the beautiful turquoise boots, and it took me thirteen coats of color to turn them yellow. Wow! <laughs> so, yeah. So obviously, every time I wear them, I have to touch them up because they they crack in that. Sure. But uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was the whole the how the whole Hogan gimmick got started, you know. And then I heard uh, through the grapevine once that all, like I said, most of the jobbers you'd see them two or three times. They change their names, you know, like like Barry Darso. You know, every time you saw him, he was something different. Blacktop bully. Well, especially with the jobbers. So, but never did they change my name. And thought that was odd. But then I said, well, you know, at the time, they were just starting to slip into that uh, Monday Night War type thing. And, of course, Hogan was their, uh, was their cash cow up there. And I think WCW wanted to just say, well, yeah, well, we'll show you what we do to Hogan's. So, obviously, I got on, got jobbed out <laughs> every week on TV. Because they want to show the superiority over the Hogan. So that's why Randy Hogan went from that little bar in Athens, Georgia, to right here talking to my favorite show, Ben and <laughs> Benny and Dan. You got it. That's so, a ringing endorsement right there, yes, Benny. Yes, sir. So, Randy, this is going to be a, a kind of like a, a back-to-school Dr. Philip Barbet long-winded question, but I think it's very important. Um, I listened to you, and I think it was on your interview with Hannibal, and you were talking about how um, there was a certain way that you conducted yourself. Uh, not, not, we're not talking about in the ring. We're talking about you know with, with, the, with your coworkers, with the promoters, yeah. and that people paid attention to that, and that to a, to a certain extent, that your, you know, your your pecking order and on the food chain um, had something to do with how you were perceived and how you were respected by your coworkers. So I wanted you to elaborate on that. And then I also wanted to ask you: Is that something that that came to you instinctively, or is that something that that was trained to you by the uh, by the Oates brothers? Instinctively, um, there was never in that any training as far as psychology or anything that's, it was all, um, learn as you go type of thing. I think the same holds true today 
for these young guys that want to work steady. Back in the day, okay, I don't care how much you got hit, you got hurt, you got busted up, you got taken advantage of, whatever. After the match, you go back to the locker room, you shake hands with your opponent, thanks for the match, and you move on. You don't bitch, you don't complain, you don't say nothing to nobody negatively. Um, as opposed to a lot of the guys that just bitch and whine every time they get a scrape or something, and they're not fun to work with. You know, I think people people like to do business with people that they like. So I just always figured if I didn't talk bad about nobody, then they don't have a whole lot of bad to talk about me. Um, I always made it a, a point to thank the promoter. Thanks for the, for the job. If you can use me again, you know, I'd love to work for you, whatever else. Just staying humble. Never letting that crap go to your head, you know. Um, you know, people say, oh, you got your brains beat out every week. Well, that's somewhat true on TV. But is there anything to be embarrassed by, by getting beat up by the road warriors or or Vader or somebody like that. The fact that you're still walking and talking, you know, shows that you, there's some toughness there. When the independence and that, you know, you were sorry. You were, you were a TV star, especially if that way with little kids nowadays. You said the, uh, uh, it has shifted from the adults used to be the big fans and now it's the kids. And that's very true. So I think. And again, this is just my opinion, but it, it's still a form of family entertainment. So when I see these guys walking around, flipping the finger and cussing other than a hell or a damn or something occasionally, there's no room for it. And I never used it. I never did it. Um, the, the business is only going to survive from these kids growing up. And if they're set a bad example, we got enough trouble nowadays in kids in schools and stuff, let alone somebody who a little seven or eight year old is idolizing, um, going and, and cussing and, and smoking in the hallway and, uh, uh, flipping the bird and, right. and everything. So I just tried to be a nice person. I just, I've always been very humble about, you know, how lucky I am and how fortunate and how blessed I've been just to be kind of in the right place at the right time. Um, and just conducted it always into this day, like a business, you know, I want to work for you. Fine. If it doesn't work out well, well, you know, I don't have to work for you again, but I'm not going to bad mouth you because you were there and you gave me a job. You gave me an opportunity. Kids nowadays don't, they all want to do the monkey flips. They all want to get the 17 uh, high spots in and want to go back like they're world champions. So they buy themselves a $99 belt and they put it around the waist and call themselves the world champion. And it's right in their head and they go walk around school, all 150 pounds of them. Right. It's just a whole different ball game now. So I think, I think old school, you know, the kayfabe, even the heels had to stay in character all the time. I was lucky enough to be a good guy, so I could stay in character all the time. Randy, it's funny that you know everything that you said. So uh, we're uh, we're sponsored by Jimmy Valiant's Wrestling School, Boogie's Wrestling Camp, BWC, and I'm actually fortunate enough to be the the BWC commissioner. But 
Jimmy wrote a book, a little booklet, actually, called Blueprint to, to Become a Professional Wrestler. And what you quoted, it, it's almost eerie that word, almost word for word, the same exact philosophy uh, Jimmy had in his book as far as how, how to conduct yourself out of the ring with your coworkers, mm-hmm. you know, being courteous, thanking for the match, showing them respect, respecting the promoters. And Jimmy, you know, Jimmy, even uh, he's been on our show a couple of times and he said, if if I go to a, a booking and, and the promoter's a 20-year-old kid, well, you know, for that night, he's my boss. Whatever he tells me to do, yes. that's what I do. And, I mean, obviously, it served him very well because he's nearing almost 60 years in the business. So I just wanted to add that. That's, uh, don't you think most of that is just logic and common sense? Well, you would think so. Oh, yeah, you would think so. But, again, that's how the... And I hate to sound like an, an old dude, you know, an old guy, because I'm not bitter at all. And I understand everything, you know, evolves as wrestling does. Um, you know, back when they had the territories, um, they could take they could take a storyline and run it around the territory and run it for a year or so. I remember down here in Florida, big time was uh, Kevin Sullivan and Dusty Rhodes. Oh yeah, Dusty went did the Midnight Rider, and and then Kevin Sullivan doing Lucifer, and then he went and got Mark Lewin and Maya Singh and all them. But they kept the same gimmick going, yeah, all the time. Nowadays there are none. Um, I really, really had high hopes when Bray uh, Bray Wyatt started out with the Fiend. Man, I was hoping here comes the next Undertaker. I mean, he had a darkness which could have evolved, but there was a storyline and he was crazy and he got Alexa Bliss and a couple other ones going on. And I said, wow, here's the savior. There's finally going to be some characters, some storylines coming back. And now looks like that's all fizzled. Depressing. But, uh, I, I, like I said, I still, I still follow the product. I don't follow the, the uh, the B shows, okay. The B shows I call um, uh, Impact, Ring of Honor, NWA, Power, all that kind of stuff. To me, if you're not on mainstream TV, you're just a glorified indie. So I, I pretty much stay to uh, I follow um, AEW um, about seventy percent of the time. I follow WWE's product 100% of the time. NXT, I was not so much, but as far as Raw, SmackDown, what's going on and everything else, I just love it. And I still look at it from a fan, not from a, an old guy who used to do it back in the day when wrestlers were wrestlers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you... you... You, you talked about the, the respect and, and the bonds and whatnot. Um, and we've tried to keep an upbeat, and you've been very upbeat so far. So we try not to dwell too much on like previ- on you know things previous or, or bad things from the past or whatever. But you've mentioned before, uh, you, you talked about Mike Jackson pulling a fabulous moolah and taking huge parts of your payoffs <laughs> as a booking fee, air quotes. Um how did how did he justify that? Did he even try, or was that just part of the business? First off, we didn't know. 
Mike always handed us our cash, you know, which was like 50 bucks. They didn't know at the time they were paying 150 bucks. But we had no idea. And somehow, and, and I'm not clear on how, but somehow some of the over guys got wind of it. They didn't even know it. And next thing you know, Jackson wasn't on TV as much anymore. And my pay went from $50 a match to $150 a match. So I wasn't going to ask any questions. But, like I said, to answer your original question, we had no idea that he was doing this. And this went on probably for, well, with me for a year. And probably with guys... You know, prior to me, he'd probably been making a nice paycheck all the time. He brings three or four guys up there, and he's getting, you know, 75, 100 bucks out of each one. And he's doing that every Wednesday afternoon. Um, that wasn't a bad paycheck for Mike. Imula made an art form of that. We actually had uh, Princess Victoria as well as uh, Tex Green uh-huh. on the show, and they said that it was the same thing. No matter where they went, you know, the promoter paid Mula, and then Mula gave them their cash. The only one that yeah. actually gave them a check, I believe, was Bill Watts. Mm. Yep. So we got, like I said, as long as I was doing it for initially, anyways, and that was more the NWA time. I think WCW. Um, I think it was over with before then. Because then they, you know, they they give you they send you a check. So right. Rick, but it Rick, was. Uh, sorry. No, I'll just say I to this day no bitterness. I see uh, Mike at conventions every few months, or whatever. No heat. I am thankful for the opportunity that he actually made for me. So that's my take on Mike Jackson. Gotcha. So um, I saw a post on, on Facebook yesterday that, uh, and the question that was asked was, what is missing today from professional wrestling? So my answer was professional wrestling. What, what's your take on that? Uh, yes. That, to put it in a big bubble, yes. Professional wrestling. Um, you don't have the ongoing storylines very much like they had back in the day. I mean, now you got the bloodline going and you got, you know, reigns and, and whatever. And, um, but the storylines are missing. Uh, the territories, um, are missing where you can't see your favorites, uh, once a month or once every two or three months, you know, now you got to see them on TV and not everybody can afford to go to a, uh, a house show or whatever where, you know, they're 50, 75, 100 bucks for a cheap seat. Um, much less, you know, the WrestleManias of the world of that. Back in the day, you could go and you could see Ric Flair and you could see Flair and Dusty and, and, and Flair and Steamboat and that. You could find that for a $15, $20 ticket. You might see that match in, uh, in Charlotte and then you'd see it again in Tampa and then you'd see it somewhere else. You could follow it. It was accessible. It no longer is. We talked about characters. Um, there's not... I can't really think of any undertakers. I mean, he was a character. 
uh, everybody do Undertaker. And like I said, I hope the Fiend would have turned into that. Now you got guys and, and I, a dear friend of mine, Barry Darso, but I keep going back to him, you know. I mean, he was a Russian and he was a golfer and he was a repo man and a demolition. And, yeah, Blacktop Bully. He had so many names, but how many really know who Barry Darso is? You know, <laughs> or, or what he was. And we laugh about this because I do little tours with them once in a while. I've been fortunate enough to. He is probably the nicest guy in the world. I don't know if you've ever met him or not. No. Him and him and Billy D. Bill is, uh, Bill's getting uh, a little bit long in the tooth, you know. He's got some health issues. But, but Barry, uh, you know, I've got some some mobility issues going on. And Barry was like a, I don't know, he was like my caretaker. He wanted to be worried about, here, hold on to my arm here, or do this or do that. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. But uh, I, the mass superstar, the undertaker, the fiend, there are none of those anymore. And there's so much talent out there now. You know, the guys that are really going under now, were better than most of the guys in my day. I mean, I'm looking at, uh, I've always been a big fan of Dolph Ziggler. I think he is great. And again, goes back to, he doesn't whine to complain. He does whatever gimmick they want him to do. And he always has been. They asked him once, you know, why don't you go to another association where you can, you know, get some titles in that? He says, Hey, he says, I'm making almost a million dollars a year. What do I want to move for? Makes sense. So he does what he's told, gets his paycheck, goes home. Um, for guys, new guys that are coming up today, I think the same business principles hold true. You know, whether you like it or not, it's your decision to take the job or not. If you take the job, do what your boss wants you to do. And if you want to quit that job after the first day, that's fine. But, uh, you know, move on quietly. Because these promoters, they talk. Even these little... Now, I know up there in the Northeast, it's a whole different animal. Everybody hates everybody up there. They hate each other. The vendors are fighting each other, and the little promoters are fighting each other up there. Man, you know, it, as much as I appreciate the conventions that I get to do up there in Jersey and New York and that, man, it's really nice to get back down here in the South. But, uh, you know, if you do one little promoter wrong, then he's going to tell the other one and the other one. Next thing you know, you're in the backyard again working for not even a handshake and a hot dog anymore. <laughs> so stay humble, be a nice person all the time. And if you're going to be a heel then be a heel. And don't get in the ring until you know you're ready. When you're 140, 150 pounds, and you got to wear a T-shirt to hover your bones, and you're still wearing your uh, your Walmart sneakers and everything, you have, no, you have no professionalism about you, then you shouldn't call yourself a professional wrestler. That's what irks a lot of us old guys. You know, you, you talk about compelling storylines, and you, you mentioned Florida. And if you think about it, uh, they wrestled every Tuesday night at the Homer Hesterly in uh, Tampa. 
And to have yeah. done that, well, you know, you got Kevin Sullivan, you got Dusty Rhodes, you had Billy Graham for a while, Bob Roop, Mark Lewin, but and then in Memphis you had uh, it was I believe um, Monday night at the Mid South Coliseum, and you pretty much had the same cast of players. You had Jerry Lawler, you had Bill Dundee, you occasionally you had Jimmy Valiant, you had Jimmy Hart, but for for them to have kept that going for all those years on a weekly basis, uh, yes speaks volumes to their creativity, I think. Well, they had a, a nice little circuit, I remember, in Florida here. They do, uh, you said they do uh, Tampa, they do West Palm, they go down to Miami, and they do the Eddie Graham Sports Arena in Orlando, uh, and then they go up to the Panhandle somewhere. So, yeah, it was a nice little circuit, and there was always opportunities for young guys who stood out to maybe get a shot at you know, having a match with some of their idols. But those days are all dried up now, unfortunately. You know, and from a from a fan's perspective, it was great because I can go to Tampa every Tuesday night and, and watch these guys because back then the tickets were affordable. Now they come to Amelie Arena maybe twice a year if you're lucky, and you're paying, you know, yeah. you're paying hundreds of dollars now. I know. It's terrible. Terrible. And there's just no, there's very few quality independent promotions running on a regular basis. Out here, there's a couple of, like you said, Gangrel, he's got a little group down here, you know, that does pretty much around Florida. And, uh, and uh, Frankie Reyes, I think, in Tampa has a, a pretty one going in coach with his school. But, uh, and they go to Newport Richie a lot also. Okay, but there's just just other than that, there's just not a whole lot. People, you know, once in a while, somebody will come up to me and say, "Gee, where can I learn how to wrestle? What can I trade?" Man, I don't know. I don't know. There's just like, the only ones I know, like I said, are Gangrel and uh, and Frankie Ray, us who do quality shows. But for those two, there's probably twenty other ones that you know just take you money. Back in the day, if you didn't weigh 200 pounds, they wouldn't train you. They would not even take your money because you had no chance of doing nothing. I was about 190, I guess, when I started or so. Uh, so I was close. But uh, the fact that I that I managed a restaurant in town, and, of course, all the boys would come in there and, and I'd feed them for free. That probably had something to do with it too, right? But it worked. It just all worked out well. Well, you know, you you keep again, like I said, my last question. You keep going positive, and I kind of want to give that chance again. We've been very critical. A lot of the guests we've had on in the last what six eight months now how, however long it's been um they've been very critical of rick flair and his last match that was like you know the event last summer the uh the tag match he yeah. was in um you've spoken recently uh benny we were talking before we started recording you you've done some interviews uh you spoke about the professional side of rick how he how he treated his co-workers he was respectful he was uh, he was liked as far as as what it was a uh, locker room presence and and a man uh, in in and out of the ring, um, 
I mean, obviously, it seems deservedly so from from everything I've heard that, yeah, yeah, the lifestyle, but we're talking about Ric Flair the wrestler. Um, can you, you kind of expand on that a little bit, the, the respect you had for Ric Flair the wrestler? You know, the first time, and I remember this vividly, there was a, uh, a job or enhancement, whatever you want to call this guy up there. Greg Price was his name. And uh, we were doing TV. Now, Flair, of course, always had his own dressing room. He didn't, he wasn't in with the boys or nothing. But, uh, you know, he would always walk through and come through and everything. And uh, I remember he walked into the room and said, Price, I'm going to make you look like a million bucks tonight. And that's what Flair did every single match, whether it be to a jobber or whatever else. It was all about the match. Ric Flair wasn't about Ric Flair. That just happened to go along with the package. Ric Flair was there for the show and for the match. Um, in some cases, uh, he would uh, have somebody new coming up, a Barry Windham or something, that that he would somewhat have to put over or, or try to get them over without making himself look bad. I, he, he was just a genius at this stuff. Um, never ever did I ever walk, I never had conversations with him, but never did I walk past him or nothing that he didn't look you right in the eye and say, hi, Randy, how you doing? Just, you talk about a kid in a candy shop, Rick Flair said hello to me and he knows my first name. Holy shit. And, uh, the only other gentleman around the around the locker room all the time uh, that really stood out was Terry Funk. You know, all us little jobbers would be a one quarter and we don't want to say nothing or do nothing or, you know, we're scared, you know, little puppies with our tail between our legs. Terry Funk was the only one that got up, walked across the room to every one of us, shook our hand, looked you right in the eye and said, my name's Terry Funk. What's your name? And he said, I am so glad to beat you, and I want to thank you for what you are doing for us. That was Terry Funk. And Ric Flair had the same appreciation from the little guys like me up to the, you know, big guys of this time that he wrestled. He, uh, I think a lot of people give him a bad rap because of what they read, okay? They don't know, they don't all have firsthand knowledge. Um, a lot of times it's all just passed, passed down. Like I said, I don't know anybody who's had a one-on-one, um, meeting with him or anything that's ever said anything bad about him. Yeah, we know about his big spending. Now the boys liked it because Flair walks to the bar. The whole bar gets a free drink right off the bat. That was Flair. Flair lived the life of Ric Flair. Not Richard Fleer. He lived the gimmick, as we talked about earlier. He always lived the gimmick. Ric Flair was Ric Flair. There was never a different Ric Flair off stage or on stage. And I I just never heard him do anybody bad. I just think he's a. I, I just think he's great. 
Reagan on his last match. I think I had no business doing that. But first of all, I think for what he did, and at his age, um, it was remarkable. Now, I'm not sure that I would have done it. Um, you know, you like to go out kind of on top rather than, than uh, have yourself, you know, moving on down to your, now you're just a comic um, getting in the ring or just uh, because you're getting in the ring, people are going to spend a lot of money to see you. And because they spend a lot of money, they're disappointed because they want to see the Ric Flair of 50 years ago. They don't want to see the 73-year-old Ric Flair. Well, but, that's uh, <clears throat> sorry to cut you off. Of I didn't mean no. I was gonna say that that's especially true. With, you know, his m- match at WrestleMania with Shawn Michaels. I mean, that was one of the most, one of the best scripted finales I've ever seen in wrestling. And he wasn't that heart wrenching at the end. <laughs> but it, it was it, heart wrenching at the it end. Got you emotionally invested. You you know, even if you knew what the score was, it's still like it, it, it made you is that, you know, temporary suspension of uh, disbelief. And that's what pro wrestling is all about. What it used to be about and what we would like to see it become again. That was a perfect example. Everybody, everybody had tear in their eye after that. Myself included. Yeah. But, so, uh, Randy, what can you give us a, a timeline? When did when did you start? I believe you actually started in the early '80s. So, when when yeah. that gentleman, that promoter, said uh, about you know suggesting that you become Hal Hogan, uh, was Hogan yet in the WWF, or was he still knocking around the territories? He had just gotten to the WWF. I think that he, I'm not sure if it was just before or just after he beat the Iron Sheik. Anyways, he, uh, he was visible, anyways. And, and it wasn't in the AWA because we didn't, uh, we didn't get any of that television or, or very much of it in Georgia. So I believe that it was, uh, it was just right after he really started catching on and started his long run. And then how long did you wrestle to? When did you retire full, from uh, full-time wrestling? Uh, let me see. That would have been around... Mm, let's see, 40, 45. Probably 95-ish. Okay. Give or take a year. Let me see. 40, 49. Yeah, it would have been uh, uh, mid mid to late nineties. I was still doing the occasional independent thing. Gotcha. Look if I had to, because I was still doing. I, I had restaurants at the time. And it was Randy Hogan's Cedar River Seafood, so I had to keep the Hogan name alive. So every once in a while, I would make an appearance here and and would sponsor the shows and stuff like that. So I had a very nice run. I got started a little, uh, you know, later for wrestling, you know, in, in, in my 30s. 
and I ran it out till my uh, till the end of my forties. But I pay the price now. <laughs> mm. I if, if we're going from oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying right now. I pretty much feel every bump that I took when I was in my thirties. Ooh. No remembrance. And I've had a lot of uh, nerve damage, spine damage. Well, so right now, actually, I, I use a walker. I got one of the power scooters, you know. I'm very limited with how far I can walk, you know, with a cane and stuff. And it's unfixable. It's for so many years, so much nerve damage from my, um, from my cervix all the way down to my lumbar. So I've had plates and rods put in my neck, didn't help. Had them put down my uh, thoracic, didn't help. So I'm still looking for some kind of voodoo out there, a monkey piss or something that's going to cure me <laughs> so I can have one more match. One more match. <laughs> Mentally. You know, but even with all those... Very fortunate. With, with all those... Uh injuries and bumps along the way you probably still a better in in your current state you're still a better worker than half of the, the people that call themselves wrestlers today oh my brain is i guarantee you my brain my brain is just like rick flair's we could go in there and we could work a one-hour broadway if we had to but the body don't listen to the brain after a while it's like mine right now, and they don't know where the damage is. They they can't find it. But there's a short circuit. My brain will tell my legs what to do, but the message don't get down there. You know? Yeah. Sure. I say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump out of bed, or I'm gonna jump out of this chair, and I'm gonna go this through that. And then all of a sudden, I stand up, and it's just not there. From the waist down, it feels like you know when your foot falls asleep. That's yes. how I feel from the waist down. And I went to bed one night, and I felt great. I woke up the next morning, and I couldn't move. Just twisted or turned during the night somehow. Anyways, pity for me. So anybody who says this pro wrestling is fake, you know, I maybe can't, I can't get them on the ground. But if I got them on the ground, I'm sure I could take them. There you go. I'd, I'd put I'd put money on on you over some of the tough guys in the business today. I'll tell you that much. Uh, well, yeah, there's a few bright spots. Go I was gonna say, if you don't mind, as we wrap up, it kind of expand a little bit. You you wrestled through the '80s through the the mid '90s. Really, during that time, I mean, yes, you had. A few of the territories, you know, Memphis, the AWA, that that hung on. Uh, some of them a little more successful than others, but really at that point there were two. The only two, the two main places to work were WWF and WCW. We touched on your your w, your time in WCW. You talked about Ric Flair and all. Where else did you wrestle during during that time? Oh gosh. All over. I guess my biggest saturation was in the South, in Jim Crockett area, okay? Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, Florida. Um, uh, I did a little thing out in Texas with Eric Embry at one time. 
Um, but that pretty much was my area, you know, which is why when there's a convention down here, which is very few of, I do pretty well down here in the south. Up in the northeast, it's like pulling teeth sometimes. That's but I will always, in my mind, Jim Crockett Promotions was the best of all those territories. Consistently. And it's not because I work for them either. <laughs> but they just, uh, you know, they, they'd swap towers around with that. But Jim Crockett just, to me, had a great show. In fact, a couple of months ago, I did a convention with uh, David Crockett. Got some more pictures with him and everything. So, nostalgia. It keeps my mind relevant, anyways. I hear you. Well, you and, and guys like you, I. Go ahead. I, and just guys like you just keep us old, especially not top tier guys. Just what you do for us and keep us relevant. Just in having us on your shows, especially a quality show. I mean, this is not just a little podcast that draws 30 listeners, or, you know, 30 listeners or something. I mean, this is, uh, it's it just, again, I'm just blessed. I'm just so, so lucky. And I just can't thank you guys enough. Well, you'll, you'll get no argument from me on that one. Uh, I know you and Benny are both in Florida. I, I actually, I, I record, I live in Norfolk, so I'm I'm a little biased towards Crockett and Mid-Atlantic myself, so I, I'm not going to disagree <laughs> with you on that. But, Randy, yeah. as, we, as we wrap up, I mean, I appreciate your time. We're, we're definitely going to have to have you back on. I mean, we're, we barely scratched the surface of some of what we wanted to talk about. Benny, as we, uh, as we wrap up tonight, any final thoughts? Well, I wanted to ask him a quick question. Maybe it's not quick, but it, it, it um, that Randy, if if you had a do over in life, you could wind the clock back to, you know, maybe the seventies, late seventies, would you still have pursued a career in wrestling? And if, and if the answer is yes, would you have done anything different? If I knew then what I know now, yes, I was in a whole different whole different place back then um so yes given the opportunities that i had i definitely would have regrets that i have that i didn't take it serious enough from the get-go i was your typical indie type guy i mean I wanted to know what's real and fake. I got some matches. It was kind of fun, you know, to go on and then drink some beer after the matches or whatever else. It was fun, and it was fun. And you went to the gym once in a while. But, you know, if I just would have taken it seriously, if I knew what could have been possibly as opposed to what did happen. I mean, you figure I got as far as I got on nothing. No amateur background, no connections, no nothing other than I had this long mustache and uh, long hair that I bleached blonde. So to get as far as I got, I am just so blessed and so fortunate. But I wonder, what if I took it more serious? What if I got up to about 250, 260, um, muscled up, um, aerobically stronger you know what if what if what if I, I think we all as we grow older we look back and say the what ifs but yes i i would have taken it much more seriously but back in the time i didn't take it serious any more than i wanted to be a wrestler 
kind of depressing, isn't it? Well, no, I mean, I, I, I can appreciate that. I think it's important that you would have stayed in the business. I mean, we've had a couple people on that look back on it and, oh, you know, I would have done my, my couple matches as a favor or whatever. And then, you know, moved on from there, but you, you still would have been on our TVs, you know, your, your blue trunks with flexing yeah. in the corner before you get, uh, you know, a, 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 short, know, match, a short match with Vader or whoever it is this week. But just maybe I would have been like one of the Mulkey brothers or like a Barry Horowitz and I would have got that win on TV. Just that one, you know, that people still remember, you know, they still talk about. Um, and I just take it a little more serious. But I'm just, like I said, just just glad I got as far as, as I got. Um, I'm still in awe of people remembering me. Or even, I am thrilled when somebody comes up and asks to buy a picture or for an autograph. Man, it just, I just beam like a little kid again. To this very day, I'm so appreciative of the fans and, and the promoters and, and, and all the guys I worked through the years that took, taught me lessons, whether it be Abdul the Butcher or not so good a lesson with Vader. Anyways. We'll hit on those at another show, huh? Well, I mean, absolutely. You, you, like I said, we'll definitely have to have you back on. Benny will reach out to you uh, when when Anytime. all's said and done. I, I want to kind of wrap up with the final thought. I give you your final hype. We maybe end on a, on a more uh, hurrah moment. You, you talked about you're you're still active. I know. I, I follow, like I said, Benny and I both follow you on social media. We we see all the pictures, the conventions, and everything you do. What do you have? Any events coming up? What does the future hold for Randy Hogan? Yes, actually, uh, weekend after next, I've got one in Central Florida here, some town called Waldo, Florida, and I'm going to be there with Jimmy Hart and Kane, and it's a a kids fest. And it's a, a fundraiser. They they do this for 14 years. It's just like a big outdoor fair type of thing. And uh, then I'm going to be up at WrestleCon in New Jersey. And I think there's a WrestleCade coming up in Rhode Island. So I'm bouncing around four or five times between now and the end of the year. Um, and again, as far as my uh, contact information, it's really simple. It's on Facebook only, okay? You want to know Randy Hogan stuff? Just type in Randy Hogan stuff, and it'll take you right to my site. Nice. I got some uh, podcasts on there. I got uh, where I'm going to be, uh, where I've been. I got some other stuff, uh, uh, my merchandise, which I'm redoing now because I've got so much different little stuff. Um, so merchandise is on there. I'm very accessible and I'm easy to find. Anybody who wants to just private message me or something, uh, on Facebook, I'll always reply. Um, I, I'm just thrilled to hear from anybody, no matter where they're at. Awesome. Actually, um, I, I lied, uh, on final thoughts, I'm curious while we got you here and it's cause you talked about Randy Hogan stuff. That's um, one of the pages we, I follow you on. You had the, uh, uh, the sales for the custom Randy Hogan figure as a, as a yeah. toy collector myself. I'm curious how that, how that went. Cause I know the sales, the, 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 the sale window just closed, didn't 
just closed, uh, uh, I think, the 21st of March. Yeah. I was approached by a guy, St. Martin, who's done, I think it's wonderful. He is specializing in these, uh, they're about five-inch um, figures, and they're really first-quality-looking, and he's strictly doing enhancement guys. He's done, like, Reno Wiggins, uh, Tony Falk. Tony Falk. Me. Yeah, I think he's got a, he just, uh, I think he just uh, got those done. But anyways, they're in the work. And of course, now they did all the pre-sales and that's done. So now they're just getting them in. So they are definitely going to be a limited edition. Um, and if a collector, it'll definitely be a collector's item. Not so much that I'm a big over-the-top guy, but there's only so many of me. And I've been beat up by every over-the-top guy in the world. Yeah, that's well, and, and I, so, I so personally... Yeah, they'll, uh, well, when they come out, I'll, of course, I'll plaster that all over, and uh, and I can uh, even send them out, and I can send them out uh, uh, some autographs and everything. So a lot of that's still, still developing day-to-day, but I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah, I, I can't. I like I said, as a, as a collector, I just I was curious to uh, that, especially because the pose that the figure's in is the same pose from your WCW. Uh, uh, one of those um, promotional picture that that you you signed for me all uh, however long ago that uh, was. Yeah, you know. So. Yep, it's, a, it's it's the same one that was uh, it was it was taken off of. So I just. Uh, I, I was I was shocked when I saw it. I said, "Wow, that's that's pretty close, you know." It's got a little round face, and a little, little, little fat belly going on. Yes. So many of these figures, they all have the same body. If all they do is change the head or something or the clothes, you know. Right. As this one gets right down to the hair on my chest. <laughs> I'm serious. That's the best way to have it, and I'm sure, like you said, though, when when the limited number comes out, they'll. They'll sell out instantly. I guarantee you that. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, Randy, I thank you so much for your time. I mean, I know uh, you're clearly still a busy man. You still got a lot of fans. Benny, you're you're in Florida. Maybe you can make some time to swing by the uh, the, the charity convention here. Well, I, I think I actually know where Waldo is. Oh, well, it's around the Cala area. It's around yes. Cala. Between that and Gainesville, I think. Well, I was once called Scala from Ocala, so I should be able to find. All it. right, there you go. Oh, there, oh yeah, there's that's, a. That's, it's gonna be good. There's a not so good blast from the past. But. I was gonna say Scala from Ocala. There's there's a word I hadn't heard in a while. <laughs> but, yeah, we'll we'll definitely. <laughs> this was this was a great time. We'll definitely reach out to you after all is said and done. Uh, get you back on. Uh, like you said, um, you're on. <clears throat> excuse me. Like you said, you're on Facebook. Uh, Randy Hogan stuff. So for Randy Hogan for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Spashano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.